Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and it is the 6th of May and in the studio we have Rob and... And Idwin. And... The 6th of May. I was thinking it was the 5th of May for some odd reason. I've got my dates all jingle jangled. <laughs> How's your week been? What have you been up to? Um, this week's been one of those, oh, the, just the cold chill and <laughs> general being indoors plus coronavirus. Plus, I have to admit, I've stayed well away from the absolute media storm that's been around, like the app for this week, for example just completely buried myself away from all those conversations. <laughs> so it's really been a week of, I suppose, um, trying to shut off some of the outer voices. Yep. Uh, I think I think last week was like my hitting point where I'm like, oh, okay, we need to slow down and self-care. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> bring in a few more of those practices. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, How about you? It's interesting you mentioned that because I've been hearing about Across the world, a whole bunch of really small community radios popping up because of the lockdown. So all across the world, like radios with maybe no more than like a thousand listeners or whatever. So they're really just the local immediate area. But it's just with people kind of checking in with their communities and people can call and being like, I need someone to deliver this to me. Can someone do it? And Mm. someone who's listening might then go and deliver it to them. And just kind of like sharing local news in that area or playing little games, um, which is really lovely because it's this kind of little microcosm to like form a community um, amongst everything that's going out, everything else that's going on. I think it's a fantastic reminder that like community is an inherent need and that Hmm. these things do exist. And I mean, especially with, as you you said, like when with, let's say, quote unquote, normal times or normalcy, Mm -hmm. um, community organizations often kind of get washed over for what's more dominant so it's it's nice to kind of see some of these resurface and you know <laughs> absolutely get to celebrate their local spirit i mean if anyone's listening who knows of any of these radio stations we'd love to hear about them more and mm. hear what they're talking about but from my understanding it's it's all across the world so it's a pretty cool like interesting phenomenon to kind of pick up during that is yeah. Um, speaking of community radio, we've got lots of stuff on the show this week. So what have you got this week, Ivan? Um, I've got an interview today with author Julie Jansen uh, talking about her new book called Benevolence. Mm-hmm. Now, Benevolence came out literally on the 1st of May, so I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but um, I wanted to get Julie in to talk a little bit more about it as it's a historical fiction based around um, drug uh, country up in New South Wales, and it's set early colonization uh, from an indigenous perspective, as I said, couched in a lot of historical accounts and families from that period in time and the struggle between obviously the new brutal colonization civilization that was going on or civilization building that was going on and um, the resistance, many Aboriginals, uh, yeah, the the resistance that was also kind of bubbling on and just the, the struggle between that. So Julie writes extensively about this and I'm very excited to get her on to 
give us a little bit more information? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this week I'll be speaking with Jeff Hanmer. So he's speaking about how we should be using this moment in relation to COVID-19 as a moment to really think about investing in social housing. And so he's going to talk about the importance of why we should be doing that and also why it's actually a really good thing uh, to be investing in, in terms of uh, encouraging local industry and also local procurement and local manufacturing. And actually it will have a really profound effect as well as addressing a long-term issue of lacking affordable housing and social housing within Australia. So that should be interesting. Can I just say, Rob, I've been really enjoying the interviews you've been doing around house housing, especially within the coronavirus and pandemic, and like just looking at how these things are impacted or like where to go from here, the opportunities, the challenges and stuff like that. Because I think it's like if you think about Maslow's needs and stuff like that, shelter and homes and house security is such an essential part of every you know the everyday but it's an assumed part of it so i've I've been really enjoying like this bit part series kind of investigating (laughs) different aspects or different yeah different ways people are communities are kind of working around it absolutely and i'm I'm (laughs) planning to ask him about what he hopes this crisis might shift our understanding of housing and how that might Mm. start during this moment um but it's interesting hearing from different people and different backgrounds like artists and architects and engineers about yeah as you say the security of housing and the in some ways, the attacks it's facing from different areas and the importance of it. Um, but with that on the show, should we get on with the show? Start with some... Yeah, let's get on to alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and we've got some alternative news coming up. This first story comes from India and it's to do with a new plan to look at drone mapping across India, which although it has good intentions, it has some potentially quite significant repercussions. So the Indian government is looking to roll out a plan to map residential areas across rural India and issue title deeds. And this is known as the ownership scheme. And it'll be the first time actually many rural lands across India will be surveyed. And so the process will be by and large using drones and other technologies with plans to complete the survey survey by 2021 and put all the information online. And so in principle, this program is all about giving title and land rights, given that most residential properties in rural India don't have proper ownership documents. And land title is actually a really important tool to improve community stability and stop evictions. And further, as India has grown, the pressure on land has significantly increased. And so as a result, there's been a significant increase in land dispute claims across the country. So much so now that two-thirds of civil court cases relate to land and property. So there are some logical reasons for why they're rolling out this program, but there's been some concerns raised about the impact it's going to have, particularly on lower-caste communities who have traditionally been denied land and are also particularly vulnerable to evictions. Furthermore, many of these communities lack access to the internet and will actually find it quite difficult to access these digital records online. 
But I think the thing to the important thing to emphasize about this is that mapping isn't inherently a bad thing. There's a great project called the Millions Neighborhoods Projects, which is an open collaborative project. And it's about trying to understand the fine grains of lots of neighborhoods across the world in areas which aren't well mapped. Um, so this would primarily be in developing economies. But this also assists with development. It sort of shows where the gaps are in services and identifying urban priorities. However, like all tools, it's really a matter of who can use it and how it is used and whether it's used to perpetuate an imbalance of power. However, this actually leads to my next story about how mapping is becoming increasingly useful in the public health crises that we're facing. So urban experts have been claiming that in this post-pandemic world, we're likely to see an additional 100 million people living in cities to fall into poverty. And so informal settlements are on the front line of COVID-19. We had a great interview with David Sanderson about two weeks ago exploring that topic with many informal settlements lacking running water and having poor healthcare access. And so these communities simply cannot shelter in place or practice good hygiene. And in addition to these 100 million people that are forecast to fall into poverty, cities are also seeing a reduced revenue therefore further inhibiting any actions to improve slum areas. So it's becoming a vicious cycle. However, mapping's been argued as a way forward and might be a really useful tool for a lot of uh, cities in this case. And so good quality mapping from satellite imagery would really help with finding communal water taps and toilets and disseminating this information across communities, as well as identifying key urban priorities and gaps. And so already some of these maps have been rolled out and developed in Cairo, Mumbai and Kinshasa. But yeah, that's my alternative news for today. It's, it's a real toss up for me. I mean, it, it just talking about this app and and recently, I suppose, drones and increased use of drones. Did you hear the story of in, in South Australia, the university that's been um, working on drone surveillance that could basically, uh, what's the word, track or not track, yeah, track the a virus like COVID-19 or scan people to check on, you know, mm-hmm. their health, like heart rate and stuff like that. Yeah. It brings up a lot of new ideas in innovation technology wise. And as you said, there's some great potentials and opportunities out there, but there's also some massive risk concerns. And as you said, with um, the, your first story, some real chances for exploita- exploitation. So it's just, I don't know. I don't know how you balance that. I guess it really falls into the ownership of the technology. So for example, with the mm. Millennium project, it's designed to be open source that anyone can access it. Um, and they're trying to make it as open and accessible and crowdsourced as possible so that then everyone can try and benefit from it. But of course, like every technology, it can be abused. I think it's just trying to trying to make it as equitable as possible um, because there are some huge advantages from having that information for communities, within communities, knowing their surrounding areas and other neighbouring areas as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, shall we talk to a song and then get into your first interview? Yes, sounds good. Up next, we have a song called 141 by Nils Fraum and Olafur Arnalds. And it's a song that was recorded at 141 in the morning after a long night of playing music. Um, and it's a really lovely, calm, meditative song.
I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. You listen to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and up next we have Jeff Hanmer. So Jeff is an architect and a writer on construction history, and he is currently the managing director of IRENA, an architecture consultancy, and is also adjunct professor of architecture at the University of Adelaide. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. So much of the focus regarding COVID-19 so far is that it has brought to light many of the faults in our existing systems. So what has COVID-19 in particular highlighted about the state of Australian housing and social housing? Well, the first thing it's highlighted is that we have 116,000 people plus who are homeless throughout Australia. And so it's become painfully obvious that we've done very little about this problem over a period of years. We might remember back to the Rudd government where Rudd had uh, planned to eliminate homelessness around Australia, and that was in 2007. It's now 13 years later, and the numbers of people who are homeless have just continued to rise. So this is a terrible thing. We, We need to fix this. So that's number one. The second thing is we've allowed our stock of social housing to wind down to about 3% of all housing in Australia, whereas it used to be about 14%. And that means to say that in every state and territory, there are very long waiting lists for social housing, which um, means that people are sleeping in cars, couch surfing, doing all sorts of things, which which uh, are completely unacceptable in a wealthy country like ours. And you you touch on a point of the Rudd government's intentions back in 2007, 2008. And so many parallels are being drawn between 
the COVID-19 stimulus package and the rug government stimulus package. It's in that 10-year period since then, or 13-year period. What is the research telling us is and isn't effective for a recovery? Well, it basically told us that if you've got, well, it told us two things, really. One is that you've got a plan to do this because, of course, Rudd didn't have the time. So the Rudd stimulus was rushed into production very, very quickly. And they accepted the fact that they would make mistakes. But, of course, the um, Liberal National Party have never forgiven them for making mistakes. But I think mistakes were inevitable in the circumstances. Here, we have got some time to plan. So the first thing we've learned from that experience is we need to use this time wisely to plan ahead. Uh, and I hope that every uh, agency that delivers social housing is using this time wisely to plan ahead to make sure they have shovel-ready projects for some time later in this year. So given that it is a good time to plan, why should we be thinking about, in particular, social housing? Why is this a really good time to invest in social housing? Well, for, for two reasons. One, we desperately need social housing. And the second thing is it's such an efficient way to generate employment. Mm-hmm. So um, if we build a house, particularly if it's under three storeys high, uh, we can be sure that we're employing lots of people on the site And we also know that most of the materials to build the house will come from the Australian building materials supply industry. Mm -hmm. So we get a double boost in employment. Mm. If if we built 20,000 houses, we would probably get 60,000 jobs on site and maybe another 10 or 20,000 jobs in the building materials supply industry out of this. So that's that's a very valuable boost to employment. Mm. I guess it's an interesting point in that So COVID-19 is a really unique initiator for an economic depression and it is disrupting international trade. But you kind of alluded to the fact that because we can be a, we can supply our own housing and our own construction materials that this won't actually impact the ability to deliver social housing effectively in Australia. Would would you say that's correct? That's absolutely correct. Um, It's it's certainly one of those things we can do without sucking in imports. Um, we can do it while supply chains are disrupted um, and we can attack a problem which has become very apparent. Aside from homelessness, we've got lots of people who are in precarious rentals and, of course, um, the loss of jobs, loss of income, a lot of people being threatened with eviction. Uh, these are all terrible things which. Uh, probably wouldn't be happening to the same extent if we had a decent stock of social housing. Mm. I guess on this point of delivery and ensuring that these projects are rolled out efficiently and quickly uh, in response to COVID-19, what are the measures that governments can be doing in order to help fast-track these key construction projects? Well, they should encourage people to start planning now. So I think most of the delivery of this would be could be through state governments or local governments and the the federal government should be starting to think about how to coordinate the rollout through these agencies. Whether the state government would continue to hold this this housing is doubtful because the way that things have been structured, uh, the state government doesn't get the Commonwealth housing rental subsidy. So they might be passing on projects to other agencies 
uh, like Anglicare, which I mentioned in my article. But certainly agencies like Anglicare, all of the caring uh, agencies, they should be planning now to, in the expectation that there will be a stimulus and that they can build more social housing. I guess then in balance to preparing ourselves and getting geared up to deliver social housing, for some people there might be concerns about things being happening too quickly. For example, we've seen in the last 10 years lots of issues with flammable cladding and structural defects. So if we are to see a rise in fast-tracked infrastructure and perhaps things moving through the planning processes more quickly, how can we ensure that these kinds of construction issues will not start to persist in potentially a huge new housing stock? Uh, it's a very important point. Of course, what I'd be suggesting is that we try and keep this housing below three storeys high. And that kind of eliminates all of the problems with flammable or combustible cladding because there's no requirement under three storeys high to have any controls over what's on the facade of the building. So I don't think we're... I'm, I'm not suggesting we go out and build 22-storey blocks of uh, social housing as people did in the 60s and the 70s. I think that would be a mistake. And so the first thing is to, to choose a typology which is more, uh, creates more jobs and has less, uh, less of a history of, of uh, construction issues than multi-unit residential has had. But, you know, we'd be right to, to, to be concerned and it would take not very long for the government or our government uh, to write a set of guidelines that would make sure that the housing that was built was serviceable, livable and fit for purpose. And I imagine in addition to those uh, avoiding those construction issues that you mentioned, having a three-storey building is also good for urban form because from my understanding, three storeys is a, generally a good height to have for a housing stock. Yeah, I think it means that you don't have to have a lift. So um, this, this, of course, makes the housing much more sustainable. And for a lot of Australian capital cities, the inner ring suburbs or the middle ring suburbs can be easily intensified by allowing people to build two houses on what was previously a single house block. Mm. So the sort of housing I'm talking about is where you get two two semis out of one block that might have had one house on it previously. Mm-hmm. And we can happily intensify suburbs without doing any significant damage to their form or, or character um, and still get the benefit of, of uh, additional social housing. Zooming out from all of this, this is a very complex and challenging moment, this whole pandemic, but it's also ripe with a lot of opportunities for change and reflection. And we've kind of touched on social housing today. How are you personally hoping this moment might change our relationship with housing moving forwards? Well, I think what it reminds us is that the people in society that get paid the best aren't necessarily the most useful. So there's a whole lot of people in society who are paid not that much. Nurses, teachers, people who work in supermarkets, emergency services workers, nurses and so on, they they are frozen out of the inner city housing market, yet that's where a lot of them work. And so we've we've been reminded that, that we ought to look after these people, perhaps a bit better than we have up till now. 
So we've got a situation at the moment which means that the famous teacher living with a policeman scenario, they probably can't afford to buy a house in an inner ring suburb in either Sydney, Melbourne or in Canberra, which means that we need to think about the implications of this. The implications are that these people, either we expect them to live in the outer suburbs and commute, which is unsustainable, or we make it somehow possible for them to live closer to the centre by providing housing that they can afford. And, and so this sort of initiative is, could be um, the signature of what we learned from COVID-19, that there are people in society who we've neglected and we shouldn't. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jeff, for, I guess, sharing your vision as well. It's, I think it's good to sort of see what are the opportunities that we could have by having these moments to pause and reflect. So thank you for sharing your expertise in that area. Thanks, Rob. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Like the wind 
going through your hair well, Come on, roll with me till the sun goes down Texas sun Texas sun Baby, you're so gorgeous. How about you and me? Take a little trip. In the big body. Take a ride with me, babe. You by my side. How does it sound? You and I. G'day, I'm Janine and I'm a koala researcher. Koalas have had a tough year, and so have we. We need some good news, and they need some attention. The 3rd of May is Wild Koala Day. Share a picture of a koala on your social media, wear a gum leaf on your shirt, and tag Wild Koala Day. Go to wildkoaladay.com.au for more ideas of how you can help koalas from home. A 3CR supporter. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR. this week's tram thoughts this is something that's uh recently come up and i suppose is 
maybe a two-parter for me. Like I might cover this again within my next <laughs> year tram thoughts. But the first part is I wanted to start off with a little bit of a rant. So something that's been really annoying me, especially while I've been in isolation, is um, the fabrication of inclusivity and representation within Hollywood and really all media franchises. I mean, it's institutionalized media and storytelling, so it's financialized storytelling, so I shouldn't really expect it to be always genuine. But it's the pretense of progress that is really, really annoying me. So what I'm referring to here is the paradigm where Hollywood, especially Disney or such brands, claim to be progressive through perhaps including an idea, character, theme or setting that has usually been silenced or marginalized in history. However, through their process of representation and storytelling, the piece is still at its core highly manufactured and exploitative to that idea or concept, whether it portrays these protagonists along lines of, for example, damaging stereotypes or kind of repeat stigmas um, or is inherently something like whitewashed. So I'm talking about products such as, for example, the recent Aloha movie with Emma Stone. So the Aloha movie is a Hawaiian story based in Hawaii and Emma Stone, who is an Anglo-American actress, played a half Chinese, half Hawaiian actress, right? So there was the idea of kind of bringing in this emerging or this different theme into like a Hollywood movie. And the Hollywood movie was talking about, you know, kind of doing something a little bit different from their normal story, but was inherently whitewashed or, or compromised or problematic. I actually think what's really interesting about this is, I mean, essentially it's, it's kind of emphasizing this idea that the single film has to appeal to as wide an audience as possible. And essentially it's kind of like, it's kind of like this, like this like mainstream film is this sort of needle that averages out to an entire audience. What is the most palatable? And I guess as society has progressed, that needle has kind of shifted as representation shifts. And as there's sort of movements, like we've seen by like, you know, the, with the queer movement, um, there's been more queer representation in films. And so, but by nature of that, it always kind of reinforces what's already palatable and doesn't challenge and make entertainment uh, a thing of being provoked, particularly mainstream entertainment. And I think that's quite dangerous as a way of mm. progressing society is by always being fed what you feel comfortable with, or sorry, what the majority feels comfortable with, doesn't actually really use the full power of entertainment as a medium. And touching off, kind of springing off that, Rob, um, something also that I noticed with, with always with this sort of representation or this sort of, you know, inclusion, the buzzwords of inclusivity or representation or diversity is it's always an extraordinarily safe choice for the institution. So, but they market it as like something controversial, something out of the norm. So Disney will be like, huh, we're doing this different blazing story and look how progressive we're being. But it is always within this bubble of like, very safety dominant social values um the needle is already shifted essentially the needle's already shifted so it it's very it's kind of insidious and it's a bit subtle because it, it really isn't risk-taking it really isn't investing in true diversity or greater change or you know true um yeah emerging values it really is just as you said reiterating the norm so i, I wanted to touch on i suppose when these representations become tokenistic, which is the case with many different films. Um, for example, we could talk about like the Marvel movies, the exclusion of a lot of women superheroes within that, like the, the, the inclusion of Black Widow or like certain 
female superheroes can come off as tokenistic because it's, it's kind of like they go, okay, well, we'll compromise. We'll take one out of the, you know, 20 hundred different female superheroes that exist and chuck it in the storyline to satisfy a certain need. And I wanted to bring up the recent uh, Star Wars renewal trilogy, which I'm not sure if our audience at 3CR have watched or not. Um, but to bring them up as kind of like a case in point example of touching on tokenism. Which, where they use kind of the use of themes, characters, ideas as virtual signaling without real substance behind them. So, I mean, like starting off with the first film, uh, which I got really excited about, was um, we had this, the introduction of this character called Finn, who was a really interesting idea. He was a child soldier. He'd been raised in a proto-fascist regime that was, you know, <laughs> the Star Wars bad guys. And he becomes aware of his own actions and chooses to defy and escape them. And that's where the first film starts off with Finn. So already this really complex three-dimensional character. Similarly, we also had um, Ray, a scavenger, and Poe, a kind of Han Solo mashup, witty rogue with huge amounts of honesty and emotion and integrity that if we think of to the, back to the original Solo, he didn't really have. So we've got kind of like a recast of the original cast, but they're, they're a little bit more complex and interesting than the, the originals did. However, throughout the movie trilogy, all of them kind of resort back to this tokenistic representation or this tokenistic um, role within their media piece. So for example, Finn, Finn gets relegated really to the black sidekick role. He's either in the movie in the grips of fear that only Ray, the main protagonist can save him from or in the grips of greed, such as the scenes where they put him in a casino and all of a sudden this very thoughtful, very emotional character suddenly goes money. And that's his only concept in that, that bit. Mm -hmm. We also get Poe, who, again, witty, emotional, Han Solo kind of mashup, becomes, throughout the series, the angry, overpassionate Latino stereotype. He goes from being overly emotional about his men and, you know, this, as I said, very real character that we can empathise with, to becoming the character in the movie who's constantly, you know, saying the dumb or loud and angry thing and getting smacked down for him being told he's stupid. Of course, even in the, later even in the series, when we learn about his backstory, it's that of coming from the streets as a criminal. Like it, it plays on unhealthy stereotypes and stigmas already being in, in the media landscape. And this makes their inclusion in the film kind of tokenistic because what starts off as this really cool inclusion or, or greater character, you know, creation is resorted or kind of washed down throughout the series into these very like trite stereotypes that we've seen repeated again and again and again in Hollywood. Uh, Rod, did you see the sorry, Rod? Did you see the recent things? What's your thoughts on this? I mean, I haven't seen any of the recent Star Wars, so I can't comment on those. But I think yeah. what's interesting about all of this is that there's kind of the, the process of representing a character or someone from a certain community, but not reflecting or going into depth about what it means to be part of that community. Like, if for example, you have this is the, the queer superhero, cool. Then there's not much exploration of what was that struggle like? What was that identity like? It's just more of a, a label. Um, and I guess that's an interesting reflection of, I guess, how film and society operates in terms of how perhaps the label is in some ways more important than the story behind them that actually makes them who they are. Um, but it kind of also raises this other point, which is this, this idea of like how, like, I guess broadly entertainment is, is a way to switch off and the kind of the, the, the surface level representation, it kind of emphasizes that 
getting to grips and understanding the complexities behind uh, many minorities, it emphasizes mm-hmm. that that involves effort and that is um, not something that you can do to switch off. And sort of it reinforces this idea of then what's mm-hmm. comfortable and what we do by default and what is not. Mm. It's also that idea of what's profitable. Cause I mean, we, we got to look at like these Hollywood margins and stuff like that. And the box office hits like, they very much rely on the formula. If you've ever seen a Marvel movie, they rely on a formula, right? And it's the kind of selling people what works or what they, what they know they can get away with rather than investing in greater change or greater experimentation or inclusion in film. And I suppose kind of touching on why tokenism, for example, was so problematic, um, as you're saying as well, Rob, you actually pointed me in the direction of an article written by Kim Ho, who we had on to interview a while ago. And he makes a point, in his article, we'll put it in the rundown, that this diversity, whilst it can kind of be found or is interjected sometimes onto the stage or screen, it doesn't always reflect what's going on behind the scenes. Mm. And that behind the scenes is really where we need to be looking for greater diversity and really, I suppose, directing the rest of this media. Yes, Rob? And I guess that kind of reinforces this idea of if there isn't that talent behind the camera, then it's kind of inevitable that the representation is going to be a label as opposed to a sophisticated and depth of understanding of what it means to be part of that community. Absolutely. I mean, if we turn to the point of, for example, touching on one, one of the examples recently I came up against was touching on Hollywood's uh, reiteration of the little mermaid. And they've done that with a non, uh, with, with a person of color as the protagonist, right? So it's a reiteration of, of a classic Dutch fairy tale. And it, it's like, okay, whilst this is a great step forward for representation and making sure these faces are visible, you know, in our, in our mainstream media, when the writing room, the director's office and the base storyline all remain not only Western, but European centric, I don't think really corporates can claim that they're doing enough. After all, it's like the, the, these foundations, these characters, these writers, when, after all, when the foundations of these stories remain, you know, Eurocentric, characters writers stories outside of that 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 culture will always be subjugated to the place of the alien they'll always be pushed to the margins and as you've just said rob they will always be put on the back foot and not allowed to have their own voice if that makes sense mm-hmm. and it, it just really comes up for me again and again and again it, it's a very fine line to play because again we, we want to be always pushing for greater vis- visibility and responsibility but i suppose sorry representation but I suppose it's also on us to really push for greater effort to actually really invest in um, other people's, in non-mainstream voices. And I think the point of investment... Culture shift. Yeah, there's a point of investment is interesting because obviously, like, every community wants to see themselves represented on screen. That's how you understand the world. That's how you get sort of a reinforcement and, like, it, like... You know, for me, when I see a queer character on screen, it's really great to see. Like, it, I, I can, and when it's a well-crafted story, there's a sense of representation that I really value. And I'm sure many other communities would see the same thing. But by not having these within mainstream films, it then sort of only sidelines them to, to I guess, more art house or indie films, which already mm-hmm. struggle with financing, whereas the large blockbusters do not have those same issues. And so, therefore, it kind of it means that for the communities that don't get that normal representation, it sort of becomes a bit of a cycle and a spiral of there isn't the funding in the mainstream or there isn't the the risk taking quote unquote 
in the mainstream films to do so, yet there isn't enough funding necessarily to convey those characters in more art house films and indie films. So then these communities get no one to represent them at all. And I suppose what really, really is frustrating as, as a kind of a viewer is watching then when they do achieve to have, when representation is included within a film to watch it be so problematic, twisted or tokenistic because it's that reinforcement of it's kind of like it's it's inherently deceptive isn't it because it says look we're doing something by including you know this character thought or idea but behind it because it is so centered to this heteronormative state or whatever you want to kind of call it the mainstream it never actually does the honor of giving that person a true character or or fleshing that idea to its full depth or as you said explaining the struggle or explaining the situation or really exploring and actually representing someone honestly yeah. as opposed to kind of commercially so i suppose wrapping up this idea the direction i thought we could take kind of take it in is i think as consumers we need to be getting a little bit more pushy with the sort of media um we expect I mean, we we live in this kind of hellish scape of shareholder values and stakeholder, you know, considerations, and we do have the ability to pressure companies to ch- corporate, you know, to, to to change corporates to some extent. So, also in the position, I I think we should try not to rest with this tokenism, but really push and demand for more writers from different communities and more stories from different communities, rather than just kind of rest in the laurels or give a company a cookie when they do the bare minimum. Mm. What's your thoughts? I think. In some ways, what needs to happen more is some amazing films about uh, other communities need to rise to the top, which we're starting to see, mm. like with um, Crazy Rich Asians with an all-Asian cast. Um, and by having those moments, I think that really re-emphasizes this is actually, comp- like, quote-unquote, competition, that this is what people want they want diversity and so i think to put it one way using your ticket as a tool sort of what films do you choose to watch um and choosing the films that do have that greater diversity and do show those different backgrounds is probably one of the most powerful ways you can do it absolutely and as as i said i'd kind of i'd quite like to explore this topic more because in researching it i've i've actually found um huge range of like cultures and stories and stuff like that which as you said are not getting platformed and stuff like that and i think luckily because we're on community radio we have the beautiful opportunity to do that so i thought we might explore in future kind of tramp thoughts and segments some of these wider stories and i suppose different approaches to storytelling also that you get rising up through kind of grassroots or community as opposed to institutionalized media and Mm. i definitely think you're right it's like what what media do you invest your time in or consume and what do you get, a, what do you learn from it as opposed to, you know, that just getting that rehashed formula and stuff like that. But I definitely think we do need to be pushing our, all of our kind of media institutions towards really authentically engaging with community as opposed to representing it and writing lines for them. You, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, that kind of, that, that wraps up this week's Tramp Thoughts. Races, my baby.
Listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. 
Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR. Now, up next, we have an interview with author, playwright and poet Julie Jansen, a Burrabarongal woman of the Darug Aboriginal Nation up in New South Wales. She's coming on to discuss her most recent work of fiction, Benevolence. Now, quick disclaimer, this book only came out on the 1st of May, so I haven't got a chance to read the book. But seeing the story and blurb, I just had to pick it up and get some more info on it. So I'll chuck over to Julie to tell us a little bit more. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you too. Um, first off, your body of work, you've been a playwright before, a poet and a novelist. What is the mindset with um, approaching each different type of medium? And um, why was this particular story, Benevolence, wrapped up in a novel? How did it shape what the, the project was? Yeah. Well, in, in the past, I had a reasonable career for 10 to 15 years as a playwright. But um, I, as I got older, I decided I wanted to try the long form of writing a novel. Uh, much harder than writing a play, but writing a play is hard enough. Uh, this particular novel uh, was a challenge. It took me five years to write, uh, mainly because it being a historical novel, it requires a lot of research. But I was lucky in that a lot of the research I'd done while I was working as a senior researcher for the University of Sydney History Department under Professor Reed on the website, The History of Aboriginal Sydney. And I uncovered a lot of information through interviewing elders out in the western suburbs and up in the Blue Mountains. And a lot of it related exactly to the history of my family. And a lot of that information I hadn't had before. And so it was very stimulating interviewing elders and finding out a, a lot of the kind of hidden secrets of, of people who live in places like Blacktown, Katoomba, Windsor. And that's where my family came from. They came from the Windsor area of Freeman's Reach. And so as I learnt more and more, and it all ended up on the internet in a wonderful website. I thought, oh, someone in the world is going to read these stories and go, oh, I'll write a novel about it. I thought, I'd better get in first and write the novel of reconnecting to my Aboriginal side of my family and my great-great-grandmother, Mary James. Absolutely. And She's not I mean, Mary James. Her real name is Mary Thomas, but I call her Mary James. You did mention that this story is historical fiction, but of course, as you just stated, it's highly researched and situated in historical fact. Um, delving yeah. into the stories along, set along Hawkesbury and your, as you've mentioned, your own personal family connection to the area, how did your research, I suppose, inform your work or what you wanted to talk about? I mean, you must have had such a rich kind of, you know, selection of people's stories to choose from. How did you kind of narrow it down? 
Well, I really, I, I wanted to try to bring back to life the story, the mysteries of my Aboriginal side of the family. Dad really didn't know much, and uh, uh, while while he was a great, you know, fisherman, hunter, tree climber, you know, he very much was an Aboriginal man in the way he, he acted through his life, but he didn't really have many stories about that side of the family. So that was what I was interested in learning, and I, um, and I managed to get things like some birth certificates, some marriage certificates, but often with an Aboriginal family, there's a lot of gaps. Mm. And uh, like there was no birth certificate at all for, for Mary Thomas, Mary Ann Thomas. And it wasn't until after a couple of years of applying for different certificates that could have been her, suddenly something arrived in the mail, which absolutely astounded me. There was her name and her mother's name was the same, Mary Thomas, but the father's name was a reverend of the church from Windsor. Oh. And I was just, I was, I was flabbergasted. So, and I thought, look, even if this is incorrect, it's such a good story, you know, to, to try to find out who was the, you know, the white father with a traditional Aboriginal woman as the mother. And it, that began to um, stimulate my idea into, in, in, into recreating this historical fiction. I mean, the word fiction is an important word to remember. Mm. Uh, last time I wrote a novel, I mean, I wrote a play called Black Mary, which was a, a historical play. And I had someone write to the newspaper complaining that I'd got a date wrong. And I'm just, people must understand that historical fiction, the word fiction, is foremost in their mind. <laughs> Absolutely. And the story itself centres around um, a young woman called Marajing and her journey along the Hawkesby River over the years of 1816 to 1843. Could you tell us a little bit more specifically about her story and, I mean, why, why her as a protagonist? What, what do we really learn through her, especially with a title such as Benevolence? Yes, well, it, it's an ironic title. Uh, the Benevolence of... Uh, of English society towards Aboriginal people after they'd invaded and taken the land and massacred most of the people. The mm -hmm. word benevolence seems to be such an irony in the benevolent society, but still exists today and does, and does wonderful work, but not for a moment is this a criticism of the benevolent society. Mm. But um, the irony of, of using the word benevolence from English people towards Aboriginal people in the early days of the colony is something which was not, you know, which was something I, I wish to investigate. And uh, I had read in the research that I did for the History of Aboriginal Sydney website, I'd read about the first Aboriginal school, which had been in Parramatta, and it was called the Parramatta Native School. It was the Aboriginal school. And uh, Governor Lachlan Macquarie set that up with his wife. And some of the children that were at the school were children who were survivors of the massacre at Appen that Governor Lachlan Macquarie had instructed uh, to happen, you know, the massacring of mm -hmm. Aboriginal people, the Ganangara people, who were known as the kind of warlike mountain people. And uh, some of those children, after their parents had been killed, were put into this school. And there was a, Maria Locke was at that school. It was quite a famous Darug Aboriginal woman out in the Western suburbs. And uh, we knew we weren't related to Maria Locke, but I thought mm -hmm. that the other Maria who was at the school was possibly my great, great, great grandmother. Well, it turned out she wasn't. But in the end, I'd begun the novel anyway. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it made sense that it wasn't her because I knew my mm -hmm. great, great, great-grandma and my great-great-grandmother were illiterate and they couldn't read or write. So if they'd been to a school for three or four years, they would have been able to read and write. Mm. So um, I then realised that their illiteracy came from the fact that they mostly lived as servants, Aboriginal servants, along the river, along the Hawkesbury River, working on estates. So that's how I began to create the story of Mary. Mary. And I mean, it's, it's just, it, it, it's so amazing to be able to delve into this history that we often, you know, do not learn about, don't hear about in schools and stuff like that. And it, 
the, these experiences that people went through. Um, I was just thinking, especially within approaching this interview about the time period in which this book is set, which is especially interesting because it marks the years after the first brutal and bloody landing of the first fleet and focuses more so on the construction of a white civilization uh, on top yeah. of Aboriginal nations. And yeah. I mean, as we know, this was in many ways more oppressive and violent as, as you've mentioned. And within kind of reading your thoughts on the book, uh, you mentioned many Aboriginal men and women who survived this tumultuous and violent time were kind of hiding out yeah. in plain view to survive. I want yes. to, to get yeah. your account of the strength and endurance that many went through and, and this, this very complex struggle of like, yeah, having, to con- having this constant confrontation. Well, I think it's a really important point, which is often missed um, when people read about Australian history, that a lot of Aboriginal people survived by simply, as you put it, not running away. You know, by, by actually coming to work in estates and working for white people, that was the way they were able to survive. Because if you ran away and you joined the, the renegade tribes as such, it was highly likely that you were going to get killed in a battle. And so if you think of it as kind of like a refugee period, like a, well, dare I say, you know, like a, the time of terrible things that have happened in Syria, that the people were, were killed if they were not under the care of a European person. So if you, you came to work for a European person, you had a certain amount of protection. And for Aboriginal women, a lot of Aboriginal women married ex-convicts. And in my family, that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, my, my Mary actually married an ex-convict. But in order to marry the ex-convict, she had to give up uh, three of her children. He obviously didn't want all of the children she had. She had Aboriginal children. Mm. And they were given up to the Benevolent Society. And the Benevolent Society record says, mother unable to feed the children. But it was right at the same time that she married the ex-convict. So I think in a way that she was compelled to do that because he mm. refused to accept her Aboriginal children. So it's kind of, I often wonder what on earth happened to those children who went off, were taken off by the Benevolent Society and kind of disappeared in the records. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a a terrible compromise. And looking at that, like reading kind of some of the themes surrounding this book, there's this huge violence um, or element of violence, as obviously there was in history. And there's this huge element of resistance that we don't necessarily hear as much. And I think it's really powerful that we're getting to hear stories of people surviving and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I suppose with having readers read this book, what are you hoping that they ultimately get out of it or they hopefully, hopefully gain better insight into? Well, look, to, what, one of the things that inspired me to write this book is that I, I read the wonderful uh, book, um, The Secret River, and also saw the play and saw the television version. But at the end of The Secret River, what happens is that there's a massacre of Barabarungal people and everybody is killed except for one old man. And sitting in the audience watching that, I got really upset. And I thought, if that is a true history of Sydney, of that area and the Hawkesbury River, who on earth are the 6,000 people who trace their descendancy from Barabarungal um, ancestors? Who, who are we? If, we? if they all died, where did we come from? So it struck me as a, as, as a kind of a, a misreading of history. And while they, it's a beautifully written book and a, a beautiful play, that's what really inspired me to kind of write another answer to what happened and how many Aboriginal people, by working on these estates along the Hawkesbury River, managed to survive and carry on the generations and have children. And now you've got, you know, you've got generations of people like myself who are fair, but trace our descendancy back to those ancestors with great pride. And I would like to kind of celebrate the memory of, of those people who survived. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And wrapping this sort of up, Benevolence is now available to order. It came out just May the 1st. So congratulations for five years yeah, of work. Kind it's of. in all the bookshops. I, can't imagine. I walked into a bookshop and there was a great pile of them and I almost cried because there's been no book launch or anything. Oh. So I signed a great big pile of them and the bookshop owner said, she said, it's doing really well. I just sold three this morning. Fantastic. And, uh, you know, and Magabala have been so fantastic and basically, you know, worked, had a, I had an editor to work with for, for the last year of writing it. And uh, without Magabala, there would be no books. So I'm, I'm incredibly privileged to have been chosen by them. Fantastic. And the book is available at the site. I mean, I am very keen to get my hands on it. So thank you so much for kind of... One last word. Yes, please. Some of the book is funny. Some of it is sexy. It'll make you laugh. It'll make you cry. So, you know, that's what good drama's about. Proper complexity going on. Well, thank you so much, Julie, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. And that was author Julie Jansen talking about her new book, Benevolence, which is now available to order from www.mag.com. A-B-A-L-A dot com. So www.magbala.com or online from your favourite bookshop or online bookseller. There she walks alone. She's headed for the sky. I mean, we talk but it's not like we get high.